Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Our lines are open for you. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. And we are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. And uh, anything that you want to ask the naked scientist, just satisfy your curiosity about the world in which we live. We are answering all your questions. Chris, good morning. Morning, Rudy. Thank you so very much. I have an email here. Somebody wants to know, does the intensity, they've put the word intensity in inverted commas, of the sun have any influence on the level of water evaporation? Oh, yes, absolutely. The sun is the source of energy or heat input to the earth. The heat arrives in the form of visible light, which is all of the colors of the rainbow. About one kilowatt hits every square meter of the Earth's surface. In other words, energy at the rate of a kilowatt hits every square meter of the Earth's surface, on average, heats up the surface. If there's water there, the water will absorb that energy, and if the water molecules have sufficient energy, they break their attachments to other water molecules, they go off as water vapor into the air. Now, it follows, therefore, that the greater the intensity of light hitting a patch of the Earth's surface, the faster that's going to happen, and the slower or the less energy that hits the Earth's surface, the slower that's going to happen. So it's absolutely true that if the sun is hot and bright, then you're going to get more evaporation than if the sun is not hot and bright. Okay. And then uh, Clifford, uh, Clifford, you are calling us from North Cliff. Hey, good morning to you. Welcome. Hello. Yes, good morning. Uh, I just wanted to ask... um, I know it's unusual, it's a medical question. I'm 71, and um, suddenly overnight, uh, my, my heartbeat dropped from above average from 85 per minute to 40 a minute. And I suddenly got very tired very quickly. Um, and my, my GP's never heard of this happening. Um, I, I wonder if Chris can, as, as if, can give me an answer for this. Hello. Hello, Clifford. If you detect sudden changes in the way in which your heartbeat works, whether it's beating irregularly or whether it's suddenly become very slow, this definitely needs investigation. It could be nothing, but on the other hand, sometimes the conducting system that conveys the rhythm which arises from what's called your sinoatrial node and conducts it to via your atrioventricular node the rest of the heart muscle to keep everything beating at the right rate. If that pathway is interrupted and your heartbeat isn't channeled correctly across the heart, then it can revert to what's called a myogenic rhythm or ventricular escape rhythm. And this is where the ventricles just beat away at their own intrinsic rate, which is slower than the normal heartbeat, and it's about 40 beats a minute. And if that happened abruptly, then... It probably happened for a reason, and it would be better to get this investigated. 
There might be nothing, but on the other hand, if something has changed, then you should get that sorted out because you don't want this happening again. Okay, thank you very much, uh, uh, Clifford. And then we have uh, Attila in Durbanville. Good morning to you. Hi, morning, morning, Chris. Yes, good morning, Attila. Yes, we Chris, can. Uh, Chris, just a question about fixed drug eruptions. I'm fascinated by the immune system. How does it remember after 50 years for the reaction to appear in the same spots? And why does it do it? Does it do it to contain a more severe reaction, like Stephen Johnson? How does a fixed drug eruption work? Well, there's a range of reasons why we can get reactions to drugs. Very common reactions that people describe are when they take a drug, frequently antibiotic compounds actually, they get a rash. Sometimes they get a more pronounced and profound response, which can even be as severe as full-scale, full-blown anaphylaxis, where you have too much histamine in the body and it's released all at once. It causes your blood pressure to drop precipitously. And even more severely, you can get, as you've alluded to, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is very, very unpleasant and can be severe to the point of being life-threatening in some people. Now, we don't know why this happens. Ideally, it wouldn't happen. And in the majority of people, it doesn't happen because we test these drugs to make sure that this sort of thing isn't a frequent outcome. But there... I mean, it must be borne in mind that everybody on Earth, with the exception of people who've either managed to clone themselves or who are natural clones in the form of twins, everyone's genetically different from Mm. everybody else. And that means we both look different on the outside, we also look different biochemically on the inside. And therefore, there's always a risk with any drug and any chemical you put into your body of what is called an idiosyncratic drug reaction. And this is where, for no good reason other than you are different from the next person, your body reacts in some unpredicted way to you taking something in inside your body, whether that's a drug, some kind of food stuff, or a reaction to some other present uh, chemical present in the environment frequently, I mean, if this is something which is innate to your immune system or it's an innate response that's already there in your body from the get-go, it doesn't matter whether 10 years, 20 years or even 50 years elapses, as soon as the substance that triggers that reaction is represented to the body, then it can come back. If it's your immune system doing it, often there's an escalation. The more you're exposed to the chemical, the worse the reaction becomes, which is why if we see someone in the hospital who has, when we give them a dose of certain antibiotics or classes of antibiotics, a rash, for example, we try and avoid giving them that antibiotic again because the chances are the next time it might be a rash plus an even more severe reaction. Brian, John, Jackie, I see your calls coming to you in a moment. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Yes, let's go to Brian in Somerset West. Good morning. Um, good morning, Reddy. Good morning, Chris. Um, my question is, we've discussed in the past few weeks um, that water freezes and then causes failure of its container. Um, if you were to put water with no air around it into a container, say um, one litre, and you put it into a container, reinforced steel, 10 centimetres thick, and you started freezing it, would, and would it prevent expansion? And would the expansion then, the lack of expansion, prevent the freezing? Or would the vessel fail irrespective um, of how thick uh, the vessel is? Hi, Brian. Well, I think what's going to happen here is uh, if you look at any road surface in a country where you get freezing and you look at the cracks in concrete, the evidence is that water is extremely good at getting into little cracks and then when the temperature drops, the water is extremely good at freezing and causing those cracks to become big holes and potholes. Um, 
the roads in Britain are testimony to that one. Uh, I understand what you're saying when you say if we make a very big container and make it extremely strong, would the uh, container therefore prevent the water becoming liquid? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly it would, it would slow down the process. But if you were to cool the liquid down to its freezing point, eventually you would take enough energy away from the water that then it would adopt ice in an ice configuration and, and it would, if it did turn into ice, exert considerable pressure on the steel and it would try and make the steel fail or stretch elastically because, of course, these metals are ductile. They will flow and move and deform elastically. Uh, and for that reason, I think you'd still potentially get ice in there. The other thing that water can do, which is interesting, is that it can be supercooled. It's possible to get water existing at, say, minus 40 degrees C. If you have nice, pure water on a very smooth surface or in a droplet with nothing in the droplet for water crystals to start to form, no nidus for nucleation, then you can actually get water sitting there quite happily as a liquid at minus 40, but as soon as it hits something hard, irregular, and uh, perhaps even another ice crystal or a defect in the surface, that acts as that nidus for nucleation or a nucleation centre, starts an ice crystal forming, and then the ice grows from there. And once it starts to do that, then you can, of course, break the bottle. John, thanks very much, Brian. John in the Strand, good morning. Morning, really morning, Chris. Um, Chris is, I guess it's more of a philosophical question, but you know, through evolution um, in, the, in the natural world, um, you know, the weaker species in inverted commas or tend to get weeded out, or at least their traits and genes aren't, you know, um, as prevalent in the, um, the group. Whereas um, human species, we through medical intervention, um, are almost keeping certain genes alive whether it be sicknesses or syndromes, whatever. So it's almost as if, you know, are we slowly but surely getting weaker as a species, so to speak, in your opinion? Well, certainly that over time evolution does, as you as you report, remove from the population genes that do not confer an, a survival or a selective advantage over an individual. On the contrary, what happens is that genes that confer a benefit to an individual or population are generally enriched in that population and therefore enriched in the descendants of that population. Now, as modern humans, we're the product of evolution for many, many years uh, from our ancient cave-dwelling ancestors. I say cave-dwelling meaning as in ancient modern humans through to the present day. But just because we're at the situation we're now in doesn't mean we've stopped evolving. The selective pressures that we face in our modern lifestyle are quite different than those faced by our ancestors. Our ancestors, for example, didn't know where their next meal was coming from. So they had genes that meant that as soon as some energy came near their body, they had a metabolism that was capable of grabbing that energy with both hands and storing it somewhere. It's called fat. Now, that, of course, today is proving to be quite disadvantageous to us. And as a result, in times of plenty, people are now overindulging. They're taking in too much energy and now they're becoming obese. And this carries a health disadvantage. Well, there will be people in the population who uh, can nonetheless eschew all the excess calories or they don't, uh, they don't grow fat. They may, for instance, find their genes becoming richer in the population because they're better adapted to survive in, in the modern world. 
Are we polluting our gene pool by keeping people alive who are carrying defective genes? Well, probably not, because arguably there are 7.2 billion people on Earth, and that's higher than, than the population's ever been in the past, and the vast majority of them are extremely healthy. That extra little bit of genetic burden, that uh, genetic cargo that gives you more diversity, there may be a benefit to some of those genes which, in a different environment, is going to downstream convert into an advantage. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the gene that causes, say, cystic fibrosis, or to take an African example, sickle cell anemia, in uh, people who carry either of those two genes, there's a disadvantage if they have children with a person who also is a carrier of those genes because you can have a child who has both copies of the gene being defective and therefore gets the disease. But in both cases, those diseases are extremely common in the population, or at least the, the gene that can cause them is very, very common in the population. So you'd say, well, why are those genes so common? They should have been deleted by evolution. In fact, if you carry sickle cell anemia, you're at much lower risk of succumbing to malaria compared to a normal person. If you are a carrier of the cystic fibrosis gene, historically, rather than so much today, you would have been protected to a certain extent from catching salmonella infections, or typhoid as it's also known. So what I'm trying to say is that whilst we're increasing the diversity of the gene pool and we're keeping people alive who have certain conditions who might have been at a disadvantage historically, those genes may nonetheless downstream confer some kind of advantage or probably won't necessarily hugely disadvantage our gene pool in the modern era. Is it Jackie who came in first? Okay, it was Jackie in Durbanville. Good morning to you, Jackie. Good morning. Yes, Jackie? Hello, uh, uh, can I ask my question now? Yes, you may. All right. Um, if I were to put a glass of water out on my, on my balcony when there's a full moon, would the water become energized or changed in any way if I drank it? Hi, Jackie. Well, what is moonlight? Well, when the sun is shining during the day, it illuminates the Earth's surface. Sometimes the moon is in the sky during the day and is also illuminated. Sometimes the moon is out during the night time, depending upon where in the moon cycle we are. And what you're seeing on a dark Earth is a moon shining in the sky because the surface of the moon is being illuminated by the sunlight that's going past the Earth but nonetheless still reflecting off the surface of the moon. In either case, it's the same light, whether it's sunlight that's come straight to us or it's reflected off the moon's surface. It's just light, and there's no special energy in there other than light energy. It's much more intense during daylight here on Earth than it is during moonlight, and uh, it, it would, it would, when it hits the glass of water, it would illuminate the glass of water. It would make it fractionally warmer, but apart from that, no, there's no special energy in moonlight. And then, Chris, we've asked this question when it comes to brain capacity, that can you reach the limit of your brain use, as it were. And just watching the athletics, watching the phenomenal Mo Farah, watching uh, Usain Bolt, does the same apply with our, uh, our physical aptitude? Uh, in other words, can someone like Usain Bolt improve even further by training harder, or you do, as a human being, reach that physical plateau? Well, if you look at the results we've seen for Olympic records over history, there's been a steady improvement year on year every year. Records are always being broken. So we're presumably, therefore, not at our maximum genetic potential yet. What do I mean by genetic potential? Well, genetic potential is what we have the capacity to do 
and it's a question of making sure that we train to reach that potential capacity. Now, people who went into athletics historically probably were a fairly select group of people in the population. It's becoming easier mm -hmm. in many countries now for people to pursue a career in gymnastics, athletics, sport and so on. And therefore the repertoire of the diversity of people genetically who are going into those sports is becoming broader. It's no more just an old boys club, for example. It's open to everybody. And as a result, we're seeing more people having a chance to test their genes against these running races. At the same time as we're also seeing more diversity in these races, which means people may or may not perform better, we're also seeing a, a real proliferation of very good equipment. People are better equipped now, and the equipment can help a person to reach their potential. Decent running shoes, suits that you can wear that keep body temperature optimal, mm. suits that you can wear to help your uh, muscles to cool, and so on. At the same time, we've become very good at testing people so we know how best to train them. We understand nutrition much better. So feeding all these things into the mix, it's not surprising that people are improving year on year, but the amount they're improving by year on year isn't dramatic steps. It's very small increments. Mm. And I learned a very interesting fact the other day. I was talking to someone last night where, where I am here in Australia, and they, they were talking about some uh, fossilised footprints of Aboriginals who were running through the bush about 40,000 years ago. And if you measure the stride length of these Aborigines, then they were actually running far faster than anyone in the modern era does in the Olympics. So clearly those people knew a thing or two about how to move fast too. All right. And then here's a question on SMS. CA says, how does a headless chicken run, run around since it has no brain to tell its body to run? <laughs> Ah, well, you see, this is actually based on fact because there was a chicken, which I think it was on a farm in, in uh, Missouri, in America, and they were going to eat this chicken and someone chopped its head off and the chicken didn't die. And the reason that the chicken didn't die is because although chickens do have a brain, it's not a very big one and it is mainly all the visual system. And the, most of the animal function, in other words, the brain parts that control, or the nervous system components that control breathing, heartbeat, uh, that kind of thing, they're actually further down away from the head in the brain stem. And when this person chopped the head off their chicken, they didn't take those structures away. Hmm. And so the chicken remained viable. And they, they, they then didn't have the nerve or the heart to kill it because it appeared to want to live so much. And so they had this thing on their farm, I'm told. This, this might be apocryphal, but I think this is true. I've seen the reports of this. So they had this thing that lived for quite a bit longer on their farm. It, would, it had the capacity to walk and, and flap about. And they used to feed it with an eyedropper squirting the food hmm. down its neck. Um, bit gory, I know. Yeah. Um, but if anyone, if anyone has any more data on that story, I'd love to have it, or, or if it does turn out to be a myth. But I, I do understand. I have seen a report on this, so I think it's probably true. Is it Sue in Isando? Good morning to you. Hi, Reddy. How are you? Fine. Welcome. Um, Chris, this is a bit of a strange question. My question is, when you have um, a hangover, why is it that a greasy breakfast is about the only thing that makes you feel better? <laughs> Don't be shy now. Good question. <laughs> First of all, what's a hangover? Well, when you get a hangover, you've poisoned yourself with alcohol. When you take alcohol into your body, it does a number of things. One is that it's a diuretic. It makes you wee. And when you wee, it takes with it salts, and that means your blood chemistry goes out, and you don't feel so good for that reason. Second, 
the process in your liver that breaks down alcohol and detoxifies it also consumes a raw material that you need to break down various complicated sugars to release sugar into the bloodstream. So you therefore also suffer an energy deficit. You have a low level of glucose in the bloodstream. You also, when you are breaking down alcohol, you produce something called acetaldehyde. And this is a breakdown product of the alcohol that if you don't remove it quickly enough, uh, it can build up and you don't remove it quickly enough if you overwhelm the system. And this acetaldehyde is, is chemically very similar to the same stuff that you use to embalm bodies with. This is washing around in your bloodstream and it's effectively fixing all of your tissues. It's literally causing cross-links and chemical, things, chemical reactions to happen in your tissues which are not good for you. So alcohol is pretty poisonous really. Your body's pretty good at dealing with, with the effects of alcohol most of the time but when you overwhelm the system that's why you get those effects. Why does a greasy breakfast help? Well, when you take in an, a nice uh, rasher of fried up bacon, that's got some salts in it, which mm. will help you feel better. Physically taking energy into your body, whether it's in the form of fat or sugars and things, is going to help up with the energy deficit because, as I said, you've inhibited the production of glucose in your liver, which means your blood sugar is low, which means you feel bad because you haven't got any energy. So taking energy into your body feels better. And often you'll wash it down with a few strong cups of coffee and that will help to deal with the dehydration too. Good luck to you, Sue, and give the alcohol a break today, okay? Okay, we're going to leave it there. Fuad and Margie, I'm sorry, I cannot take your calls. We've run out of time. And Chris, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us today. We'll chat again next week. No, I'm looking forward to it, really. Ta-ta. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye. And those of you who are holding on and couldn't be put through are making a public commitment. You will be our first callers next week. We're going to take your calls now or your email addresses and we are going to phone you at next week at half past nine. Deal? Deal.